You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, you may find the content of this podcast difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. You should also be aware the information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Over the past couple of months, First Tech have received a number of inquiries in relation to SMSFs investing in a related company or trust under a special in-house asset exemption. So for this edition of Question of the Month, we thought we would take a look at these structures, including what rules apply, what people use them for, and also the traps and pitfalls to be wary of. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Tim Sanderson, a Senior Technical Manager in the First Tech team, and joining me today is Craig Day, the head of the First Tech team. G'day, Craig. Hey, Tim. So I have to do the work this time. Yeah, that's right. This is a bit complex, this topic, so I'd, I'd rather not be the one answering. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. All right. So, um, Craig, today we're going to be getting quite technical and discussing SMSFs investing up to 100% of their assets potentially in a related company or trust, which would normally be prohibited under the in-house asset rules. So before we get into the detail of how and why a client might want to do that, I think it's important to provide a quick summary of those in-house asset rules first, just so people understand the context of those rules. So can you give us a quick summary? Yeah, sure. Um, a quick summary of the in-house asset <laughs> rules um, is, is quite a stretch, but uh, I will try. Now, what the CIS Act uh, does is it defines an in-house asset to be one of three things. So it says an in-house asset is a loan to a related party. Now, a related party will normally include the member themselves or a relative or, or a company or trust or even a partnership um, that the member controls, right? So it's going to be a loan to a related party. An asset of the fund subject to a lease or lease arrangement with a related party. So let's say that SMSF owned an investment property. We wanted to lease that to the, uh, you know, let's say a daughter to live in. Um, that would be an asset of the fund subject to a lease uh, to a related party. So it would be an in-house asset. Or finally, an asset of the fund that is an investment in a related company or trust. Now, a related company or trust is effectively a company or a trust that the member of the fund controls. Now, that's either individually or along with their other associates. So their other associates would be their, their relatives and uh, any other companies or trusts that they hold. By holding more than 50% of the shares or units or by having effective control of that entity. Now, effective control is that you've got dummy directors in place and you tell those directors what to do. Now, if a company of trust is considered to be related, weirdly enough, a fund is permitted to actually invest into it by acquiring shares or units if it's a unit trust. But that initial investment must not cause the fund to exceed the 5% in-house asset limit. Now, that's based on the market value of the asset. So the market value of the in-house asset, as well as the market value of the fund's assets. Now, in addition, it's not only on acquisition we need to worry about that 5% limit, but each 30 June, the fund must come back and measure 
the value of its in-house assets and make sure that they do not exceed that 5% limit. And if they do exceed that 5% limit, maybe because the value of the fund's in-house assets has gone up a lot more than the, the value of the fund's other assets or the value of the fund's other assets has fallen in comparison to the in-house assets, um, then in that situation, you've got to identify the amount of the excess on that 30 June and you must enter into a plan and make sure you carry out that plan to sell down the excess within the next 12 months. Okay, so if I can summarise in relation to a related company or trust, while my SMSF is allowed to invest in it, it is subject to a 5% limit based on the market value of the asset and the market value of the fund. Why is that? Well, interestingly, prior to 1999, so almost 24 odd years ago, there used to be no restrictions on SMSF investing in such such related companies or trusts at all. And actually, as a result of that, a common strategy back in the, the mid to late 90s involved self-managed super funds, known back then as excluded funds, um, of investing via a related company or trust to get around the superannuation investment rules, such as the ban on super funds borrowing. Okay, so can you explain how they did that? Yeah, very simply, what, what the members of an SMSF would do is simply go and set up something like a unit trust, which they would then own all of the units in, like, like the SMSF would invest 100% of its assets in and they would be the trustees of that unit trust. And then the trust, which wasn't subject to the superannuation investment rules and restrictions because it's not a super fund, would then go and borrow to acquire assets, so effectively getting around the ban on super funds gearing. Okay, so the, the in-house asset rules introduced in 1999 killed off that strategy as it defined um, those related company and trust investments to be in-house assets and imposed a 5% in-house asset limit. Now, at the time, the government included some grandfathering rules, which means you can still see funds with these sorts of arrangements out there. Now, those rules are another podcast in themselves. But that was 24 years ago now, so they're getting fewer and fewer these days. But then after about 12 months of that rule change, the government introduced some new rules which would allow an SMSF to invest up to 100% of its assets in one of these related companies or trusts without those in-house asset rules applying, um, appearing to contradict the previous rules that it made. So um, can you tell us why the government yeah, it was a bit unusual at the time. Um, we just had all these rules to, to restrict these types of arrangements and all of a sudden, 12 months later, the government introduced some, some regulations to allow it. But what we think happened here is the government acknowledged that when it shut down these related company and trust investments by introducing this 5% in-house asset rule, it probably had an unintended impact of shutting down a, a range of other legitimate uses of such structures. So what it then did is it relaxed the law to allow such related party investments. But at the same time, it did include a bunch of additional conditions to ensure these entities couldn't be used to circumvent those superannuation investment rules. So, yes, you can do this, but not in the way that you used to use them to get around those rules. So in summary, they said you can invest in a related company or trust, but only where that company or trust doesn't go and enter into arrangements that the fund would be prohibited from undertaking itself. Yep, that's basically exactly what they did. Okay, um, so let's start looking at the rules for these special companies and trusts uh, 
that a lot of people refer to as 1322C trusts and companies, which is just a reference to the CISREG that exempts these structures from the in-house asset rules. So what are the key rules? Okay. Now, also another common uh, reference for these types of stru- structures are what I've called as in-gut trusts, <laughs> which, which is basically a non-geared unit trust. So just watch out for that terminology as well. But uh, I think we basically in the First Tech team just refer to them as 1322C trusts and companies. Now, back to the question at hand. So, okay, so the rules basically say an SMSF's investment in a related company or trust will not be an in-house asset and therefore not subject to that 5% in-house asset limit. Oh, so it can invest up to up to 100% of its assets if it wants to, where, and these are the conditions. First condition is the company or trustee of the unit trust is not party to a lease or lease arrangement with a related party of the fund, including via an interposed arrangement, unless the lease relates to business real property. And the company or the trustee of the unit trust does not have out have any outstanding borrowings. Okay, so that makes sense. Um, An SMSF would normally be limited when it comes to leasing assets to a related party. So to satisfy that criteria, a company or trust can't lease anything other than business real property to a related party. And also super funds generally can't borrow. So these companies and trusts uh, have to not have any borrowings. Um, So are there any other criteria that have to be met? Yes, in fact, there are. So the assets of the company or the unit trust must not include any of the following. So the first one is an interest in another entity, and that includes a share in a company or a unit in another trust, a loan to another entity other than an Australian bank account, an asset over or in relation to which there is a charge, an asset other than money that was acquired from a related party of the fund after 11 August 1999 when these rules came in, unless the asset was business real property acquired at market value, or an asset other than money that had at any time been owned by a related party of the superannuation fund in the previous three years, unless the asset was business real property acquired at market value. Okay, let's have a look at some of those. That loan rule, that's to anyone, right? Not just a related party. And the the bank account bit, what's that about? Yeah, you're right. The the company of trust must not have provided a loan to any party, which is actually more restrictive than CIS when you think about it because an SMSF is entirely able to lend money to an unrelated party, but under these rules, the company of trust would fail the criteria to be a 1322C company or trust if it did so. Now, I think that the reason for that is probably the government is just wanting to avoid people trying to get around these kinds of rules by saying, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll go and lend money out of this related company or trust to some other unrelated party. And then funnily enough, that loan is then on lent to a member or other related party of the fund. So they're just saying, look, we don't want any of that kind of game going on. So therefore, no loans at all out of one of these uh, companies or trust. Um, and the bank bank account bit, um, technically opening a bank account is actually lending money to the bank. We don't think about it that way, do we? But that's actually how it works. So um, if, if we were to not exclude the ability to have a bank account, um, that would mean that any time you know, one of these companies' trust went and put money into a bank account, they would actually be lending money to the bank and that would cause a failure of the criteria. Now, obviously, in that situation, 
what happened there is that the exception actually applies to authorised deposit taking institutions under one of the Australian Acts. I think it's the Australian Banking Act. Don't quote me on that. Um, so what that means is that that exemption applies for Australian banks, but not foreign overseas banks. Okay, so Australian banks only. Um, and also, so the criteria that you mentioned about uh, interest in other entities, why the restriction there? Now, we think that's probably just to avoid having to apply streaming provisions. So, for example, if you're going to allow a company or trust to hold an interest in another company or trust, then you would need to apply the same rules to that underlying entity, which just makes everything more complicated. So to avoid that complexity, the rules just say, you know, the company or trust must not hold an interest in another entity, full stop. Okay. And any other rules that we need to consider? And yes, indeed there are. (laughs) Just the rules just keep on coming, right? So the interesting thing here is that Reg 1322 sets out all of the requirements, but also Reg 1322D also specifies a number of things that will cause a fund or not a fund, a company or trust to fail the 1322C requirements. And this includes where the number of members the SMSF increases to more than six, or where the company or the trusted unit trust conducts a business. So one of these things, you can't go and set up one of these arrangements, get the SMSF to invest 100% and then get that company or trust to run a business. That would fail the requirements and therefore you're back to the in-house asset rules. Or the final one is the company or trustee, the unit trust conducts a transaction otherwise on arm's length terms. So all transactions carried out by this entity has to be conducted on arm's length terms. Okay, so that's a whole heap of rules and requirements. And so if we take all of that into account, into account, what do people actually use these things for if they can't borrow, they can't invest in other entities and they can't run a business? Yeah, it seems, seems rather restricted, doesn't it? I remember when these rules came out, we we're looking at, go, okay, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't run a business. What can you do? Well, where we see them being used is actually as an alternative to a tenants in common arrangement to for the fund to acquire um, assets such as property. So, for example, instead of a fund and a member each acquiring 50% of a property as tenants in common, what they can do is set up, uh, let's say, a related unit trust and each apply for 50% of the units and then acquire the property through the trust. Now, another situation we've seen in an SMSF, um, it basically identified a property that it wanted to acquire and then develop but it didn't have enough to do both. So in this case, both the member and the fund apply for units. The trust acquires the property and then develops the property with the, obviously the capital injection coming from the SMSF as well as the member itself. However, in this case, it's gonna be really important to ensure that that doesn't actually result in the trust being considered to run a property development business. Because remember, if I'm running a business, that causes me to fail the rules and I'm subject to the 5% in-house asset limit. So you're looking at going and buying a property, developing it, and then leasing it out on a long-term basis. Don't go and develop it, you know, sell it, and then go and do another one and another one and another one, which makes you smell like you're running a business. And all of a sudden, you know, the ATO or the auditors come in and say that thing doesn't satisfy these criteria and is an in-house asset. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so what if what if down the track one of these is put in place and then the fund wanted to, let's say the member was the other unit holder and the fund wanted to buy out the member, could 
that be done? Yeah, well, obviously the units or shares in one of these one of these thirteen twenty two C trusts or companies are exempt from the prohibition on the acquisition of assets from related parties. Otherwise, you couldn't invest in the first place, right? So they are an exemption. So that allows you to actually invest into that company or trust in the first place. Or where the member has, you know, holding 50% of the shares or the units and they want to sell those into their self-managed super fund, they actually could do that because once again, those those units or those shares are an exemption from the acquisition of assets from related parties. Just needs to be done at market value. Okay. And you said earlier these arrangements are kind of an alternative to a tenants in common arrangement. So why wouldn't I just do a tenants in common arrangement instead? Yeah, so not have to set up this entity. Well, you can, but the fund can only buy a member's share if the asset was something like a business or property, so not residential. So think about that. So if I go and buy, let's say, a, a residential investment property as tenants in common, the fund can never buy my ownership portion off me because that's not an allowable asset, right? Um but if it's business rural property, yes, it could. But the thing here, though, is if we set up one of these 1322 um, see companies or trusts, then it doesn't matter whether that asset sitting underneath the, the company or trust is residential or business rural property because it's the shares we're acquiring, and that is uh, an exemption. The, the other thing here to note is that while we could, you know, if we did do it via a tenants in common uh, arrangement, then if I did want to transfer my 50% share of my business rural property into, let's say, my self-managed super fund, I've got to do that via a conveyance, which involves the lawyers and it's just more hassle, right? Um, And that may be okay if you're acquiring that 50% in a single transaction, but what if you wish to acquire, you know, the 50% over time, so over a couple of years via multiple transactions? You don't want to have to do a conveyance every time. In comparison, just transferring some units, getting those units properly valued, and then selling them across to the SMSF or potentially even doing an NSPC contribution um, for market value, that would potentially be much simpler. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so if... If the fund uh, didn't have all the money it needed for one of these sort of arrangements, why would they not just acquire an asset using a limited recourse borrowing instead? Oh, well, certainly limited recourse borrowing arrangements are certainly an alternative to these and, and probably you might argue much, much simpler. And actually, since their inception back in 2007, so that's when those limited recourse borrowing arrangements first came in, 1322C trusts have been much less popular. So a lot of people in that situation where they're looking to buy an asset where they don't have enough, um, instead of going in involving a member to invest into, you know, this one of these 1322C trusts or companies, they just simply get the SMSF to go out and enter into a limited recourse borrowing arrangement to borrow the difference. But the thing there is LRBAs don't suit, suit all clients. So they may not want to borrow or they simply can't afford to because of high interest rates, for example. Also, an LRBA may not be appropriate appropriate if it would require different parties to be in the same fund. Um, and that, that could be an issue that you want to try and avoid. Yeah, that's a good point. So I guess with any arrangement like this, there's normally some traps that's important to be aware of. So what are they in this case? Yeah, in, <laughs> indeed there are, right? And there's many and, uh, and they are quite serious. So the first one is falling into the really simple trap of 
getting the company or the trust to go out and buy some listed shares. And we've seen that happen, right? And people think, well, they're listed, they're fine. You know, the SMSF can buy them. Why can't this company or trust? Well, by acquiring some listed shares, you've now holding an interest in another entity and the rules simply do not allow that. So that would cause you to fail the criteria and therefore all of a sudden you're an in-house asset or these company or trust is an in-house asset. Another one would be making sure the trust pays out all distributions or unpaid present entitlements promptly at the end of the year. Um, if for some reason the trust doesn't do that and holds on to the money, it will be considered to have actually borrowed from the self-managed super fund. And remember the rules for these companies and trusts is they can't have any outstanding borrowings. In this situation, if you haven't paid out your unpaid president title, you've held on to that, then on a financial accommodation has actually been paid from the SMSF, the unit holder, back to that, that company or that trust, or in this case, the trust, because it, it's owed money, which it actually hasn't called, called in. So the, the ATO will actually view that as a loan going back to that 1322C trust, which will cause you to fail the criteria. Um, and also, as previously mentioned, uh, make sure nothing you do looks and smells like running a business, especially if you're going out and buying a property, you know, doing a renovation on it and selling it and doing it again and again and again. That can be quite a dicey thing. If you're going to go and buy a property and develop it, the, the prudent thing there would be to the whole idea there is you're buying to improve, to generate an increased rental return uh, and you just continue to hold that property and rent it out. Um, and also be careful if the company trust is going to hold foreign assets that require a foreign bank account to collect the income. So as we went through before, yes, there is an exemption, you know, technically opening a bank account, putting money into it is lending money to the bank. Um, and there, while there is an exemption for lending money to an Australian bank by opening a bank account, um, no such exemption applies to foreign bank accounts. So in that situation, if you did open a foreign bank account, it would be considered to be a loan and will cause the fund to fail, sorry, not the fund, the, the company or trust to, to fail the criteria. And otherwise, it's pretty much very similar to the CIS rule. So don't acquire assets from related parties unless it's a business rule property. Make sure you conduct all transactions at arm's length value and don't borrow, including going into overdraft. And, and also don't allow the assets of the fund to be used as a security. And that's, that's about it. Okay, so uh, I guess a follow-up question. What if I do do one of those things, um, if I make one of those mistakes, and let's say, for example, I buy some shares or fail in some other way, what can I then do to fix the problem? Yeah, and we have seen people do that. Well, I've seen clients destroy a really, really good strategy that was uh, that was really kicking goals, and then all of a sudden, you know, they come in and tell the advisor that they bought some shares, uh, and that blows the whole thing up. Now, in terms of fixing it, unfortunately, you can't fix it. Okay, the S the ATO put out SMSF determination two thousand eight slash one, which confirms that once an entity fails the criteria, it permanently becomes an in house asset even if you subsequently fix the issue. So if you've gone out and bought some, you know, listed shares, some CBA or BHP or whatever you bought, and then you go, oh, no, I shouldn't have done that. And even if you sell them, too late. Too late, she cried as she waved a wooden leg, as my old woodwork, woodworking teacher used to say. So in that situation, because you've breached, that's it. You've now permanently breached. And those shares in the company or the units in the unit trust will now permanently be an in-house asset. And as a result, that 5% limit 
will apply and the SMSF will now need to divest, divest of itself of any assets such as units or shares which exceed that 5% limit, which generally requires the unwinding of the whole arrangement. If you've, if you've invested up to 100% of the fund's assets in one of these structures, then that all has to get unwound, potentially at very, very significant costs. Think if there's a property sitting in there that you now have to sell, you've got all the transaction costs stamped, or not, maybe not stamped you unless you're buying it back off yourself, um, but all of those costs, and it's also going to trigger tax consequences. So just don't go there. Just don't go there. Yeah, so it really highlights the importance of taking real care when there's investments in these sorts of things in an SMSF. So so who, who would these structures be suitable for? Okay, so obviously an SMSF client looking to acquire assets such as a property that it can't otherwise afford and for whom a limited recourse borrowing arrangement is not possible or not desired could consider a 1322C trust or company. However, I would suggest proceeding with caution. Okay, as we've been through and as you've seen, the rules here are complex and a small mistake, either at setup or even worse, five, 10 years down the track, can cause that structure to now become an in-house asset and the 5% limit applies. And that's obviously gonna have really significant consequences for that structure. So as a result, these types of arrangements should only be considered for those types of clients who are able to understand the structure that you're recommending for them and able to understand the rules and able to understand that they don't go and mess with it, right? Um, and that not only it's set up, but on an ongoing basis. So, you know, quite sophisticated type of SMSF investors wanting to achieve these types of outcomes that we've talked about and are able to understand the rules because if they do anything wrong, then potentially, you know, who they're going to blame. They're always going to blame the advisor. They're not going to blame themselves. Yeah. Uh, and so finally, if if an advisor needs more information regarding this uh, this area, um, where can they find more where information? Well, there's a couple of sources. Um, I would always suggest the good old First Tech SMSF guide. We've got a whole chapter on this kind of stuff. Um, also, the ATO website is also uh, a source of information around 1322C Trust arrangements. Um, and if you've got a client that's really interested in doing this, I, I would really be thinking about getting some specialist legal advice as you're going to need to be setting up an entity. Uh, and that entity needs to comply with a, a range of criteria to make sure it satisfies these rules. So get, you know, go and get some specialist legal advice around how you do that uh, and get the client fully on top of what they're doing. Um, and that's where that's that's what I'd really recommend. Yeah, good advice, I think. Um, so anything else, Craig, or you think that pretty much covers it? No, I, I think just to summarise, you know, obviously 1322C trusts, you know, they used to be very popular in the lead up to the limited recourse borrowing arrangements come out. Um, obviously, they, that took the shine off. A lot of people thought, oh, no, we'll just go and borrow via an LRBA. But these things are still out there. And, and when you come across a client that they suit, they can, you know, really help you achieve interesting outcomes. But as I said, they are complicated. You want to make sure that you're setting these things up with wise, eyes wide open um, and that the client fully understands what they're getting themselves into. And if you get all of that right, they can produce some really good outcomes. Um, but yeah, it's just really important to, to make sure you get that understanding. Okay, no problem. Well, that, that pretty much wraps it up. Um, thanks very much, Craig. Cool. Thanks, Tim. Thanks very much, everyone. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please note that these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors as a source of general information. 
All scenarios considered during the podcast were purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. You should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decisions and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, no person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited and Adventist Investments Limited, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.